Hello, testing. Joseph, that was beautiful. Great job. Thank you for sharing your talents with us. I pray you will use them forever to praise God. Good morning, church. It is so good to be here this morning. So good to see you. A few new faces since the last time I saw you. I look forward to connecting with you this week. Since the last time I saw you, my family and I got a chance to um, explore and visit the Pacific Northwest. Anyone from that area of the country? A few? Well, I had never been there before, and this time I was following my husband who had a meeting in Seattle. And of course, the logical thing is to fly into San Francisco, rent a car, and drive up the coast to Seattle, right? No? So that's what we did, um, and we wa I wanted just to share a few quick pictures with you. We got to do the, do I have the clicker myself? Oh, they told me three. Is that the right number? So <laughs> I'm technology, technologically challenged. Um, all right, so we got to do uh, Yosemite. Anyone has been there before? It is just breathtaking. It's dry, and so Yosemite Falls is now Yosemite Sprinkles, but you can probably see a little bit of water in the middle. We got to do some hiking through. My, my son begged me to share this photo, but now he's not even here. He wanted his favorite part of the whole trip was just seeing this elk down the road. So, uh, what else? There's Half Dome way in the back. It was a hazy day, and so we didn't really get to see much of it. But as you can see, just a stunning view. And then we made our way to Oregon and got to Cannon Beach. Have you been there before? It just, pictures just do it no justice. It is so breathtaking. You get there and you just cannot take it all in. It's absolutely beautiful. So we got to spend some time there with uh, the sea seagulls as well. And then made it up to Mount Hood and uh, just got to take in all the, the beauty. And do I have another? Oh, and then, uh, well, those are backwards. That was in California. <laughs> this is the uh, Jedediah wood, Redwoods. And uh, it's, oh my, my heavens, just when you get out in nature, it, uh, there's nothing that speaks about God more beautifully, more impactful than nature. And so you're out in the woods with redwoods that are 300, 350 feet tall, and you are reminded that you are this small. <laughs> and you're just a little part of this big world. So that was our great North Pacific adventure, and so we are happy to be back at home. We had a lot of cleanup to do when we got back home. I was worried about my dad because he lived in Tampa, and I thought I kept calling him thinking the hurricane was headed his way, and he's like, no, I'm actually grateful. He cleaned my roof, so I'm good. I'm like, well, um, we are about 20 bags of debris and dead branches at mine. He's like, really? Nothing happened in my house. <laughs> got, got to hear that, Daddy. All right, well, <clears throat> I am looking forward to this week. I've been praying so much, 
and uh, just begging God to pour his spirit into what will happen this week. We have no control. Only God has control. And so we only come with listening ears, and God will do whatever God will do. And I'm just happy to be part of that. So I invite you to join me this week, every night, except for Thursday, at 7 p.m., correct? And uh, the praise team, how beautiful was that? What a great way to start. So, y'all, here's my invitation. Join me every night. Come and sing. It is a great way to start worshiping. And so I am so looking forward to exploring this theme of reclaim with you this week. Let's pray. Our gracious Holy Father, Lord, we come with humble hearts before you. We just want to hear from you, Lord. Send a word. Whatever we need to hear today, Lord, speak to us. Clear our minds and our hearts from whatever may be impeding your word to penetrate our souls. We give you the next hour or whatever, however long we spend here today, we just give it all to you. This is your time, Father. We're listening. Amen. I have a confession to make. I am incredibly directionally challenged. When people say go north, I say, um, so is that left or right? Before GPS came to my rescue, I would print directions. Do you remember this time? You print directions in a multiple piece of paper. And because I couldn't foresee every contingency, I would often find myself confused and lost in the middle of a, an intersection or a crossroad that either didn't make it to the map for whatever reason or because there was an accident or construction and now I'm forced to change my course of direction. On such occasion, I would call upon my husband, who is not directionally challenged. And my, bless his heart, he would patiently guide me. I would make him stop whatever he was doing. You know, he would be at work in a meeting or uh, <laughs> working. He's laughing because he knows this. He, working on a deadline at lunch. And I'll be like, honey, stop whatever you're doing. I need your help right now. And he would have to stop whatever he was doing and then proceed to tell me exactly where I was at and then tell me how to get to my destination. I cannot count how many times my husband had to come to my rescue, all because I cannot tell east from west. No one is more grateful for GPS than my husband. <laughs> Our spiritual lives are not that different from my lack of knowledge and directions. We set on a journey believing that we are on the right path, but soon discover the challenges along the way, which throw us off the path and send us searching for a new direction. So in those moments, the question is, is the Bible the guide that will lead our lives to the right direction? Is it reliable? Or is it just a myth? 
Is it just a book with interesting stories? Or is it truly God's Word? If so, how do we know for sure the Bible is the ultimate GPS that will guide us to the right direction? Since early 1900, the percentage of the world's atheistic and non-religious peoples, such as agnostics, secularists, communists, and so on, has grown from 0.2% to over 21.3%. In other words, from less than one-fifth of 1% to over one-fifth of the world's population. America is no different. According to a Pew Religious Landscape survey conducted in 2014, 22.8% of the U.S. population did not consider themselves religious. This is the most dramatic change on the entire religious map of the 20th century. Secularists or people with no religious commitment now form the second largest community in the world, second only to Christians. But catching up real fast at the rate of about 8.5 million converts, if you will, per year. No matter where you go in the world, all humanity shares the same longings for something greater beyond the here and the now. In the search for that, however, Satan introduces deceiving schemes that lead human beings to satisfy such longings with earthly pleasures. Be wealthy, he says. You'll be happier that way. Be famous. Be popular. Be controlling. When all those things fail to bring us happiness, when all those things fail to bring the happiness and the satisfaction that men set out to gain, man then turns to God and blames him for the emptiness and the dissatisfaction in his soul. See, there's a God hole inside each of us And this hole can only be filled with God. And the only book to have that complete story of how our lives can fill this hole inside of us is the Bible. It is no wonder many have tried to discredit Scripture throughout history. It is a book that many have used for grace, but also many have used for hate. Some read it and fall in love with Christ, while others read it and persecute his followers. It is the most translated, most debated, most criticized book in the world. Whether you like it or not, the Bible is the most powerful book in history. Not only has it stood the test of time, it has remained the most shared, loved, and sold book of all time. The name Bible comes from a Koine Greek word which literally means those books. Koine Greek was a common dialect spoken in early biblical times, so the name Bible literally means a collection of books. As most known, there are 
how many? 66 books, right? We have 39 in the Old Testament, 27 in the New Testament. Now, where do they come from? The Bible was written in the, in the span of 1,500 years by approximately 40 different authors in three different languages. But all came together with astonishing unity of message and fluidity of story. This alone is quite a remarkable thing. What other books have you read in the past? that have been written by 40 different authors who most never even met in their lifetime, yet wrote one continuous story that perfectly fit together. There is one big picture story in the Bible, and that is God's plan to rescue you and me from sin, to rescue humanity. Every single book of the Bible points to this plan of redemption. And Scripture says all things in Scripture were breathed by God. So in other words, God inspired these writers to write the things we have in the Bible today. But how do we know that's true? Thankfully, God left multiple sources of evidence that prove over and over the validity of Scripture. Let's take a look at a few, as there are way too many to cover in just a few minutes. The first clue that we see is prophecy. Moses, a man who lived about 1,500 years before Jesus came to earth, foretold of Jesus' coming. King David lived 1,000 years before Jesus. He also foretold about Jesus' death and resurrection. Daniel lived 500 years before Jesus. He prophesied of Jesus' return. The prophet Isaiah lived about 700 years before Jesus. But Isaiah's writings are quoted consistently throughout the New Testament by, write, by the writers of the New Testament because of his accuracy in predicting the coming of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. There is only one way these men could have known about these events that would take place hundreds, some thousands of years after they would be dead and gone. The only way is God gave them the message. There is just no other way. These men wrote about things they did not fully understand as they were so far out of context in their lives. So the only way to be able to share a clear message that would make sense to future generations was if God himself would share that message with them. Proving scripture trustworthy is not something new to our generation. In fact, the disciples used the fulfilled prophecies of the Old Testament to show people they could really trust that Jesus was truly the Messiah. In the Old Testament, in books such as Genesis, Isaiah, and Jeremiah, we find Jesus' genealogy, which was predicted hundreds of years before and was another way to help people recognize the true Messiah. Events surrounding Jesus' birth were found in books like Isaiah, Micah, and Jeremiah, 
And some Old Testament books talk about his divine nature, while others cover Jesus' ministry and what that will look like. Together they made a complete picture. The book of Psalms predicted his burial and resurrection. There were 29 prophecies found between the book of Psalm and the book of Zechariah, which was written about 500 years before Christ. This one told about the betrayal, the trial, and the death and burial of Jesus Christ. All of these prophecies came true in just one day. All of these to say the Bible itself takes care of providing the proof of its authority and validity. If we care to look, the Bible shows us that it is God's word and we can trust it. But if you're saying, well, all these passages could have been written after the events took place. In other words, you're saying there may have been some rearranging here of already written passages to show that they were somewhat manufactured or manipulated. That's a valid point. It's a valid argument, isn't it? The truth is, a manipulation of such is simply not possible. As about, 20, about 250 years before Jesus Christ came to this world, there was already a Greek translation of the original Hebrew writings. This translation already included all of the prophecies from the Old Testament, which foretold of Jesus' ministry, death, and resurrection. Now, other arguments say that the Bible has been around for centuries, and it's been passed around from hands to hands in that time span. How can we really trust that? It is true. The Bible has survived many wars, persecution, and many evil intents. Personally, to me, this is one of the strongest arguments for believing in Scripture, but I understand that someone may find that alarming and may question. But as always, God finds a way to provide the evidence. And there's a story that I love that took place in the summer of 1947 that offered proof to this very argument. It involved a young Arabian boy from the Qumran region in the Middle East. The boy lost track of one of the goats he was supposed to be watching. This region is found in one of the lowest points of the earth, a group of hillsides overlooking the Dead Sea. The boy followed the wandering goat into the cave that was thousands of years old. He threw a rock into the cave hoping to scare the goat to come out, but instead he heard a crash, a sound like pottery breaking. He ran home to tell his dad that there were ghosts in the cave. So his father, thinking that maybe there's gold or silver in there, went and checked, checked it out for himself. When he looked inside one of the caves, instead of finding ghosts or silver or gold, the, boy the boy's father found old, worn-out jars and broken pottery. Inside were scrolls, old scrolls with leather backing. And he took the scrolls, sold them to a trader who was going to sell them to a shoe cobbler. The shoe cobbler thought he could use the leather backing to make shoes out of them. But praise God that did not succeed. 
Eventually, an Israelite scholar secured them and found over 20 caves full of old scrolls. The jars protected these scrolls for thousands of years. These scrolls, now we know, are the oldest manuscripts of the Old Testament ever found. And they were written over 100 years before Jesus was born, which was 1,000 years earlier than any other manuscripts available. Every book of the Old Testament, except for Esther, was found whole or in fragments. The book of Isaiah, for example, was in the best condition, found in its entirety from beginning to end. These scrolls prove that nothing we find in our Bible today was changed since the time it was first written. Archaeologists in the 19th centuries have been some of the toughest critics of the Bible, mostly because some of the ancient sites depicted in the Bible had not yet been found. In comes Nelson Gluck, an American rabbi and archaeologist who served as president of the Hebrew Union College from the 1940s. He was able to find over 1,500 ancient sites using only the Bible as his guide. He stated before his passing that there has never been a single discovery, a single discovery in archaeology which contradicts the historical content of the Bible. Another author, Josh McDowell, he wrote in his book, Evidence That Demands a Verdict. After trying to shatter the historicity and validity of Scripture, I came to the conclusion that it is historically trustworthy. If one discards the Bible as being unreliable, then he must discard almost all literature of antiquity. He continues, one problem I, const I constantly face is the desire on the part of many to apply one standard or test to secular literature and another to the Bible. One needs to apply the same test whether the literature under investigation is secular or religious. Having done this, I believe one can hold the scriptures in his hand and say, the Bible is trustworthy and historically reliable. See, the same test is applied to all ancient historical documents. Whether you're talking about Julius Caesar's Gallic Wars, or whether you're talking about histories of Tacitus, or Annals of Tacitus, or the New Testament. This ancient document test includes questions such as, are each copies faithful to the original? Are they free of changes, errors, pollutions? How many copies are available? Where were they found? What was the length of time that passed between original and earliest copies? Each of those questions and many more need to be answered in order to give the seal of approval to an ancient manuscript. And the Bible passes with flying colors. The New Testament, for example, has over 4,000 Greek manuscripts with about 13,000 copies of portions available in Greek. Compare this to a famous ancient document like Gallic Wars 
which only has 10 Greek manuscripts. There are so many occasions the Bible has been proven over and over as historically accurate. And we can rest assured God has been in charge of the process through it all. I echo the words of British paleographer Sir Frederick Kenyon, who devoted his entire life to the study of ancient documents. He said, No fundamental doctrine of the Christian faith rests on a disputed reading. It cannot be too strongly asserted that in substance, the text of the Bible is certain. When it comes to the bibliographical test in attesting the manuscript, evidence for the Bible, the Word of God not only passes with flying colors, it does better than any historical document. Many who argue the Bible is simply brainwashing minds, once they begin studying it, cannot resist the power of God. There was a philanthropist, um, travel, a philanthropist traveling through a jungle where he met a group of tribal people. To his amazement, when he arrived, they were all reading the Bible. Now, he himself was not a believer of God, and so he said, Oh, you don't want to believe anything you read in that book. Please stop reading it. Don't read it anymore. To this, the tribal leader replied, My friend, you see that pot over there? If it weren't for this book, you would already be in it. <laughs> see, the reason why the Word of God is still changing lives today, it's not just the lives of those alive during biblical times. The reason why it's changing lives today, that is found in the verse we read earlier today, Hebrews 4.12. And it says, The Word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. The Word of God is still alive today. As alive today as it was when it first came out of God's mouth. In Luke 8, Jesus compares the Word of God to a seed. Now, why a seed, we may ask? Because a seed has life in it, but it can also create life outside of itself. Even a big sequoia tree big redwoods that I showed you earlier, start with just a tiny, tiny seed. The only thing the seed cannot control is the soil in which it falls. The soil is the thing that determines whether the seed will flourish or die. So Jesus said there are four types of soil in his parable. The first one is the wayside path, or the hard path, by the side of the road. This represents the seed that does not even reach the soil. This seed is the people that hear, but do not even let the message reach their hearts. 
they, they dismiss it immediately. So it never reaches fertile soil. The next one, rocky places. This seed is in closer proximity to the soil, and although at first seems promising, it doesn't have enough to take root, similar to the wayside path. So this represents the people who hear God's word, some even with joy, but then forget the message, or maybe they remember how hard it is to follow Jesus, and then they lose interest and move on to something more exciting. The next one is thorns. These are the people who hear the word of God, show some fruit initially, but soon get caught up in the worries of life. They get focused on other things instead of nurturing God's word. So just like weeds steal nutrients from the seeds, preventing it from growing, worries, earthly desires, vanity, and other earthly things take the person's attention away from the seed in their hearts. So eventually the seed dies. And finally we have good soil. In verse 8, it says, But others fell on good ground, sprang up, and yielded a crop a hundredfold. So this soil produced 100 times more that tiny seed that first was planted. This not only represents the people who believed in the seed, but tended it with care and diligence. I have a beautiful papaya tree in my backyard. Now I have no green thumb. Don't think that that's what I'm talking about. This is a miracle that this plant has survived. But this beautiful plant, I was determined to make it work because everything I've planted in the past dies. And so I tend it with care, and if one little ant is in there, I'm spraying it, and I'm making sure that the whole thing is not disturbed by anything. I was so worried about the hurricane, because I was not home when the hurricane passed. But this beautiful papaya tree I planted last year. And every day I go and I check on it. I make sure that nothing is disturbing it. I take all the dead leaves down and water it and give it food. And it has taken over one year for this tree to finally show some fruit. And now there's ten beautiful baby papayas. And they're growing and maturing, and I just cannot wait to dig into those papayas. But it did not happen overnight. It took a lot of patience and diligence and work. So is the Word of God. There is life in it, but it does us no good sitting on the shelf. Just like my papaya sitling can only come to life when it's buried deep in good, nutrient-rich soil. So the Word of God comes to life when it is buried deep in our hearts. The fruit will come eventually. You do not need to worry about that. It'll come in due season. You worry about tending that seed 
that was first planted in your heart. During the Second World War, the American army stormed across Okinawa, where soldiers found villages of unbelievable poverty, illiteracy, and filth like nothing they had ever seen before. Soon they arrived at Shimabuke, a small tiny village in the island of Okinawa. But they noticed something different in this village compared to the rest of the island. Homes and streets were clean. The villages were poised and cultured, enjoying a high level of health and happiness and intelligence, prosperity. What was the difference, they asked. The difference came 30 years earlier when an American missionary stopped at this village on his way to Japan. He only stayed for a little while, but before he left, he shared the gospel and a Bible. One single Bible he shared with two villagers, and their names, Shosai Kina and his brother Mojon. When the missionary left, all these two men had was this Bible. But that was all they needed to share of God's message with the rest of the village. And so from that day on, the people of Shimabuke had no other missionary or any other Christian groups, for that matter, visit them. But in those 30 years, they made the Bible come to life in their village. And that, that alone, changed their lives forever. Clarence Hall, a war correspondent, wrote the following when he covered the story. He said, I strolled through Shimabuke one day with a, a tough old army sergeant. As we walked, he turned to me and whispered hoarsely, I can't figure, fellow, this kind of people coming out of only a Bible and a couple of a couple of guys who just wanted to live like Jesus. And then he added what was to me an infinitely penetrating observation. Maybe we've been using the wrong kind of weapons to make the world over. See, the same word that spoke mountains and trees, animals and constellations into existence is alive today and waiting to speak truth into your life, into my life. Just like the seed that falls into good soil, God is waiting for you to allow him to plant that seed into the soil of your heart. This week, we are going to use God's word as our guide. This right here. The word of God as our guide. And my prayer is that we will allow his words to fall deep into our hearts and take root into our life. Only then will we be able to say like Job declare in chapter 30, uh, 23, 12. He said, I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. I have treasured the words of God 
more than my necessary food. See, in those days, they would hide grain from wandering Arabs who would take it. And grain was a precious commodity back then because it was all they had to eat at times. And it was not as readily available all year round. So they would hide it well as it was so precious to them. But Job said, I hide God's words even more than my own food. Let them take the grain, but not the words of God. Because it's just too precious to me and the only thing that will truly sustain me. What a powerful statement. I pray we too will consider God's word so precious that we will hide it more than any other possession of ours. I pray that we will guard it deep in our hearts where it will take root. I pray that we will diligently tend to it every day until it grows into a beautiful sequoia tree. I cannot wait to explore God's word with you this week. I so hope you join me. I'm so thrilled to get the privilege of exploring God's word with you this week. And if you want to explore God's word and have a deeper understanding of God and let it take root in your life, I invite you to stand up with me today. And if you want to ask God, Lord, that tiny seed that you once planted in my heart, I pray that you will dig deep into my soul, bury it in nutrient-rich soil. Don't let it get to the side of the road where there is rocks, and heart soil, let it take root. Let it dig deep. Let it grow strong like my papaya tree. I pray that we will do that together this week. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, Lord, we are eager to get to know you deeper this week. We cannot wait to open this Bible and see you in a fresh new way. I so humble, Father, by this opportunity. And I pray, Lord, that our hearts will be moved by the power found in your word. Move in our hearts, Father. Move in our hearts this week. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.